The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga has quickly become a household name after just over a decade in the music industry. Despite her outrageous fashion and controversial antics that have often placed her in the highly criticised spotlight, there is no denying the talent that this songstress has. She possesses a strong vocal range, she is a master on the piano, and she has the ability to write great pop hit after hit, which has seen her rise quickly to be recognised as one of the biggest acts on the planet. From her childhood days, raised by her hard-working parents, to the bright lights of stadiums and arenas around the world, Lady Gaga has battled many demons in her lifetime, including extreme bullying, severe depression, chronic pain, and even sexual assault, all of which she still deals with to this day, but uses it as her drive to battle on. In such a short time, Lady Gaga, known as Mother Monster to her fans, has forged her own legacy, combining both art and music together, forging basically her own genre, and is seen as a huge inspiration and role model to her loyal fan base, known as the Little Monsters, that have more often than not been through similar tough times themselves in their lives. This is a story of triumph for all the underdogs that dream big, because in the words of Lady Gaga, you were born this way. This is a story of Lady Gaga. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Lady Gaga was born Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanata on the 28th of March 1986 at Lenox Hill Hospital in the city of Manhattan, New York in the USA. Stephanie's parents included her mother Cynthia Louise Bissett, Germanata, who worked as a philanthropist and business executive at Verizon Wireless, and her father Joseph Germanata worked as a successful internet entrepreneur who would go on much later in 2002 to be a pioneer in the installation of wireless internet in hotels by starting the company Guest Wi-Fi. Stephanie was raised in an upper-middle-class Catholic family but it wasn't always that easy for the Germanata family, as her parents had worked extremely hard to get to that position. Her parents are self-made business people, who would both work upwards of 12 hours a day, and they themselves were born and raised in lower-class families. Stephanie's grandparents came to the US from Italy, basically with just the clothes on their backs, and her father was the first in his family to go to college, and her mother was the first to go to school. Stephanie's background includes French-Canadian, but predominantly it is of Italian heritage, with both sets of grandparents originating from there. Stephanie would be raised by her parents in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, in a three-story apartment building. While she grew up in a strict Roman Catholic household, she was given the freedom to explore art and music from a very early age. From just the age of two, Stephanie's parents could tell she had an ear for music and her mother says she had a great sense of humour and was very talented. 
Every Sunday, Stephanie with her family would attend church which was literally located outside their window next door to them. The Germanatas were a very tight-knit Italian family and Stephanie would be raised on typical Italian foods such as pasta and sausage and meatballs. As a youngster, she was always full of energy and took a keen interest in the piano, despite not being able to reach the piano keys too well. By age four, Stephanie's mother had her learning piano as she noticed how intrigued she was. Her mother described her as very determined and always wanting to put on a show for everyone as she dressed up in a range of costumes. Her father would nickname her Loopy, and still does to this day, as she was always quite quirky and different. Stephanie's earliest happy memories and influences in music, however, would come from her father's taste in rock and roll music, including records by rock bands and artists such as Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, and Billy Joel. Stephanie remembers her father picking her up and spinning her around the living room as they listened to his music together. Despite Stephanie claiming she wrote her first song much later on, her father recalls that he put on the track Money by Pink Floyd, and the two would sing and dance along to it, and at just the age of four she made up her very own version of the song called Dollar Bill. Growing up, she would be amazed by actors and films such as The Wizard of Oz, which would begin her lifelong love of performing and acting herself. When not playing piano or listening to music, Stephanie would often be found playing with her My Little Pony toys and described herself as very girly. In order to learn how to play piano correctly, Stephanie started taking serious piano lessons by as early as age five, as her technique was seen as a bit too passionate and all over the place. Her teacher would tie strings to her hands and teach her really fast scales that go up and down the piano keys. The teacher would also balance a pink panther figurine, or toy on the string, by its chin, and due to Stephanie's passionate and floppy style of playing, it taught her to stay balanced and learn good steady form as the goal of the exercise was to stop the Pink Panther toy from falling off or from dropping down low. Stephanie was taught classical music first, and over the years she would learn pieces from Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, and Chopin, most of which she learnt using the school piano as her parents didn't own one at the time, where she would go on to play piano at a school recital at the age of eight. Also attending the school at the same time was Paris and Nicky Hilton. On the 10th of March 1992, when Stefani was almost six years old, she would welcome into the world her baby sister, Natalie Veronica Germanata. The two would remain extremely close throughout their life, with the two having to share a room growing up, and her sister would go on to study fashion and art in college. Around the age of eight or nine, Stephanie bought herself her first ever CD, which was punk rock band Green Day's album titled Dookie, which included tracks like When I Come Around and Basket Case. Around this time, Stephanie's parents added to her CD collection by giving her Stevie Wonder's signed, sealed, delivered album and an album of the Beatles' greatest hits, adding to her list of influences, with Stevie Wonder becoming one of her all-time favourite musicians. Stephanie would be heavily influenced by the music and fashion of artists like David Bowie, Elton John, Freddie Mercury and Andy Warhol's artistic style growing up and also cited Black Sabbath, Queen, Prince, Grateful Dead, Marilyn Manson, Madonna, Blondie, Garbage, and Michael Jackson as some of her favourites growing up, and would later claim that the music of ACDC even helped her to relax, with the song TNT being one of her favourites. At the age of 10, Stephanie wanted to have a dress-up party, and could be seen wearing her mother's top, and rolled it up like a pop star, similar to the likes of Britney Spears, and began posing and performing for everyone. 
It was evident from very early on that Stephanie had a clear interest and confidence for the life of a pop star. She even said so herself that she dreamed of being a star. Stephanie dreamed big and would often wander into her mother's room and put on her jewellery such as pearl and fake pearl necklaces and would head back to her room where she would sing, act and dance in front of the mirror while listening to music pretending to be a pop or rock star or sometimes she would imagine she was Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard or even Gloria Estefan performing for her fans on stage. Stephanie was so infatuated with being a star that she would also stand at the top of the staircase of their home, pretending it was a stage, and that below was her adoring fans as she would sing the Star Spangled Banner, pretending to be her hero, Whitney Houston. Stephanie would even do her makeup before bed and was obsessed with looking outrageous or controversial very early on. To further her passion for music, her parents enrolled her in a creative arts camp where she believes that she shared her very first kiss with a boy. In 1997, at the age of 11, Stephanie was enrolled by her parents to attend the convent of the Sacred Heart Catholic and Private All Girls School located in Manhattan's Upper Eastern side of New York City. It was a good school and Stephanie was a disciplined, smart and focused student, a trait that she would learn from her self-made parents. She was determined to work hard and get good grades as she respected her parents' sacrifices and for enrolling her in a good school and wanted to get the most out of it. Despite doing well at school, Stephanie found school quite difficult socially. She wasn't a popular kid and she often felt out of place by the privileged girls that were basically taking their parents' money for granted. While attending school here, she experienced severe bullying that came in many forms. Some of these include being bullied for her Italian heritage, the shape and size of her nose, she was called rabbit teeth and germ, short for germinata, and was chastised for being chubby and called fat, even though this was hardly the case. She said, I used to get made fun of for being either too provocative or too eccentric, so I started to tone it down. I didn't fit in. I felt like a freak. One of the worst memories Stephanie has of being bullied still sticks with her today. The story goes that many of the girls in her class at the Sacred Heart liked to hang out with the boys from other schools after school. While Stephanie also knew these boys, they were incredibly cruel to her in order to impress the other girls. One day after school, she went to meet up with some friends at a local pizzeria, but waiting out the front were the boys. They picked her up and threw her in the trash bin. Making matters worse, was the school bus with all the other girls from the Sacred Heart School started driving past and everyone noticed Stephanie struggling to get out of the bin as they all laughed at her as the bus drove off. Despite feeling humiliated, Stephanie attempted to laugh it off with a nervous giggle but this really embarrassed her and made her time at school really tough. Stephanie couldn't bring herself to tell her parents and kept the secret for many many years out of shame. Her mother would later reveal that she was aware of some of the bullying that was happening, but not all of it, and especially not the worst cases. Stephanie even had profanity spray painted on her locker that read faggot and phrases that were mocking her Italian heritage. She would also be teased for being quite girly, as she liked to wear makeup and dress differently to others, as most girls at the school were tomboy types and didn't feel the need to dress up as there were no boys to impress. Despite this, Stephanie remained committed to her studies and her love for performing and music. Stephanie would perform in school musicals including the role of Adelaide in Guys and Dolls and even scored the role as Philia in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which was held at the all-boys school at Regis High School. 
She got these roles through her amazing voice and she would usually score the lead role in all of the musicals at the school. As Stephanie's parents wanted to help her go further with her talents, for a number of years, Stephanie would also study method acting and take acting classes at Lee Strasberg Theatre and Film Institute from age 11 and would remain in the classes for almost 10 years. While she says she struggled with dancing, she was extremely good at piano and felt she was a natural musician. This would cause other students to become jealous of her and she was bullied further for her ambitions to become a famous performer with many saying things like, why do you want to be a famous singer or actress, and you will never make it. Even her teachers told her that she would never make it, as she looked far too ethnic with her dark hair, and didn't have the typical pop star look. Stephanie would describe herself as being a misfit during these times, and was often bullied for being eccentric and provocative, which made her feel quite insecure for trying to be herself, and would be something that she would battle with for her whole life. For Christmas at the age of 12, Stephanie received a gift from her father, which was a Bruce Springsteen piano songbook, including the likes of Thunder Road, which was her favourite Springsteen song. Her father wanted her to learn other styles of music apart from classical, and told her if she can learn to play Thunder Road, as well as Beethoven, then he and Stephanie's mother would take out a loan for a baby grand piano for her 13th birthday, but only if she was still serious about playing piano. Stephanie worked incredibly hard to learn these pieces and practiced all the time on the school music room piano. At first, Stephanie found it quite difficult and confusing as the book also included guitar chords. But she eventually figured it out and she was soon playing Thunder Road fluently, which she said was a big moment in her musical journey. Stephanie would play it for her father, who would often cry over the song and said it made him fear a time in the future when she found a man and left him behind. As Stephanie grew older, she became more and more obsessed with music and playing the piano. So for Stephanie's 13th birthday, her parents came through on their promise and took her down to a piano and music store called Steinway's, where she picked out a black Boston baby grand piano, and her parents paid it off over several months, as they couldn't afford to buy it outright. Stephanie would spend a lot of her time with her parents and sister, and she would soon attend her first concerts together with them with her favourites being Radiohead and Green Day as she idolised Tom York of Radiohead and Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. Stephanie's father would even take her along to see a musician named Frankie that usually played at a local cafe called Arthur's Cafe. This time with her father was very important and seeing Frankie perform inspired her further to take an interest in music and live performance. Along with piano lessons, Stephanie would also receive jazz-style vocal lessons, which would come in handy much later in her life. She loved jazz music, and said it was always great for relaxing her as well. On another regular day in Manhattan, one day after school, a 13-year-old Stephanie was wandering around singing out loud when she headed into a local boutique store. She continued singing while in the store, before a life-changing random opportunity presented itself. A man who was working at the store noticed Stephanie had a beautiful voice and said, You have a great voice. You should meet up with my uncle who's a pop rock voice tutor in New York. The man handed Stephanie his uncle's business card and a reluctant Stephanie took the card, not thinking too much into it. When she returned home, she did some research on the gentleman listed on the business card. To her surprise, it turned out to be a renowned vocal coach named Don Lawrence who had helped the likes of Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, Bono of U2, and Christina Aguilera. Stephanie was now incredibly nervous and was speechless at how lucky she was to get this opportunity. 
but with her mother sitting by her side, excitably, Stephanie decided to make the call. Don Lawrence organised for Stephanie to come and sing for him, and soon enough after a couple of lessons, she improved out of sight. Don noticed Stephanie had a knack for understanding scales and melodies, and he picked up that she was a pianist, and he said, have you ever thought about writing music? Stephanie replied, I've written poetry, but never really written a song. Realising her obvious all-round talent, Don replied, I think you should write a song. I think you would be good at writing. This moment would change everything for Stephanie, who would head home to think of ideas for songs. Three weeks later, at the age of 13, she wrote her first ever full song that was a piano ballad, which was an eye-opening moment for her. She wrote the song while she was in the car with her parents and sister driving home from her grandma's. She was singing away loudly with her headphones on when her dad said, Hey kid, you're not on stage yet. Stephanie started crying and screaming at her father's nasty comment, and when they pulled up alongside their New York apartment, Stephanie, her mother and sister, got out and waited for their father to go park the car in a garage around the block due to parking issues within the city. As they waited for him around 15 minutes, as he had the keys to the apartment, Stephanie wrote the song during that time, called To Love Again. She said the song was about being in love and then losing that love, only to give love a chance again by remembering what made us fall in love in the first place. Despite not being in love or knowing the feeling yet herself, it was evident that her talent for being a songwriter was there. By age 14, Stephanie started performing at open mic nights at bars and clubs around the city. She also briefly joined a classic rock cover band during high school around this time that played anything from Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd to Jefferson Airplane. She later spoke about her band and the influence of Led Zeppelin saying, We were called Mac and Pulsifer. I have a real passion for Robert Plant's vocals. Led Zeppelin was a huge inspiration for me. I'm certain that side of my musicianship will seep through the pores of music in the future. Stephanie loved rock music, but also loved pop music, and was interested in fusing the two together. What further influenced her love for music, art, and acting, was that the Lincoln Center of Performing Arts was just four blocks from their home, where they would hold operas, ballets, and all sorts of musicals. Stephanie dreamed of one day performing there, and was a goal of hers when she saw the names of performers and shows light up on the sign out front with lines of eager audience members. As she got further into her teens, Stephanie started rebelling and began sneaking out of a night with her small group of friends to all sorts of places just to hang out and would even go to local clubs and bars in the New York area, despite being underage. Stephanie wanted to break free of the good little Catholic schoolgirl image and wanted to see what life was like on the other side. It is said in this time that she started experimenting with a range of drugs. In 2001, at age 15, through Stephanie's method acting experience, Stephanie made a very brief appearance in the popular TV show, The Sopranos, as a mischievous girl in a small group of girls, where they are seen giggling at some boys. Feeling as though she could make it as an actress, she attended a number of auditions, but was unsuccessful with every single one, which stunted her confidence on the acting side of things, and she thought maybe she should just focus on music. At age 16, Stephanie made her very own demo CD of originals and handed copies of the CD out to guests at her 16th birthday party as party gifts. The CD included songs called Kisses and Quarters, If Only, Selfish Girl and In a Dream. For this same birthday, she got herself a G-Clef tattoo, which became her very first tattoo representing her love for music. With school soon coming to an end, 
Stephanie's mother, who had always recognised her talents for the arts, encouraged Stephanie to apply for early acceptance at the Collaborative Arts Program 21 at America's Musical Theatre Conservatory and Theatre Company for Training, known better as Tisch School of the Arts, which was held at New York University. After graduating from high school age 17, Stephanie thought she had no chance, but was one of 20 very lucky students selected from around the world to join the Tisch program, and she was also one of the only students working while studying after getting a job as a waitress. Stephanie moved into a dorm at New York University on 11th Street, where she composed many essays on religion, art, political and social justice issues. She even wrote a thesis on artist Damien Hurst and nude photographer Spencer Tunick. The same program at Tisch would see the likes of Ian Hathaway and Kirsten Bell pass through there. But after three semesters or around one and a half years, Stephanie grew to hate the program and decided to leave in order to follow her musical pursuits just after turning 19. She said, I thought I could teach myself more about art than the school could. What also encouraged Stephanie to leave was the harassment she received once again from the students at New York University who became jealous of her talent and started a horrible Facebook group called Stephanie Germanata Will Never Be Famous. While her parents were disappointed that she had decided to drop out of the program, they were supportive of Stephanie, with her father giving her a year to make it in the music industry or she would have to return to schooling or university as he wasn't going to keep financially supporting her if she wasn't going to get a good career. Stephanie moved into an apartment in Manhattan on the Lower East Side for $1,100 a month, which was reasonably cheap for Manhattan but was also still expensive on a budget. However, her father did help her for the first three months, paying for her rent until she got onto her feet and found a job. Stephanie soon found herself working three jobs at once, including as a waitress, a burlesque or drag dancer, and as a go-go dancer, known for dressing in bikinis. As she now had jobs, her father stopped paying for her rent, and a lot of the money that she earned was being spent on rent, so she lived off of cheap food and junk food. She said, I left my entire family, got the cheapest apartment I could find, and ate shit until somebody would listen. But during this period, she was quite happy to just live by herself, read poetry, and play music, which is exactly what she did in her spare time. She landed a minor role in an MTV prank TV show called Boiling Points, and recorded two songs for hip-hop musician Melly Mel for a children's audiobook named The Portal in the Park by Cricket Casey. The songs were called World Family Tree and Fountain of Truth. Things weren't all great, however, with Stephanie revealing just recently that at the age of 19, she was sexually abused and raped repeatedly by a man who she knew well. Stephanie struggled to talk to anyone about what had happened, but when she tried to, she felt no one wanted to listen anyway, especially the other men that she told, where she said they just didn't want their power over women to be compromised. So instead of telling others, she bottled it up and attempted to put it behind her. But like all trauma, little did she know that the trauma would resurface years down the track. To deal with the pain in her own way, she became severely depressed and turned to drugs, self-harm through cutting, and even started throwing herself against walls. Despite the cuts on her arms seeming quite obvious and being her way to speak out without words, still no one tried to help her. Stephanie would use every bit of strength she could to move on and try to just focus on her music. Still age 19, and despite her family opening up their own family Italian restaurant called Joanne Trattoria after her auntie, 
Stephanie instead started looking to find her own way in the music business as she tried her hand at more open mic nights and even busked or street performed. During September of 2005, Stephanie started her own four-piece band called the Stephanie Germanata Band, or SG Band, with New York University students from their own band called Snowmine. Stephanie would soon land her first gig at a local bar in New York, where she dressed in hippie-style clothing and placed a flower in her hair. She played an hour and a half set that self-admittedly lasted too long, and included a mixture of originals, covers of Led Zeppelin including Dyer Maker, and songs that she herself loved, but not many in the audience seemed to know too well. She just faked her confidence and performance to act like she knew what she was doing, but was very nervous and had no idea. Often she would perform in simple tank tops, much different and average compared to her future fashion choices. After building a small fan base that followed them to gigs at the Mercury Lounge and around Lower East Side Manhattan, they attracted music producer Joe Vilpins, who would help her record her very first EP. Stephanie with her bandmates recorded their first EP around this time, titled Words, and sold it at further gigs. Stephanie continued to perform in the area at bars and clubs, and in particular in January 2006, at a bar called Paul Colby's The Bitter End. One song in particular that she wrote and performed here was called Hollywood, and seemed to attract quite a lot of attention, due to Stephanie's unique vocal techniques utilised during the song, along with the rock vibe she gave off. Stephanie would often receive positive comments about this song, including one person saying, you have a great set of pipes. In the basement of a liquor store with her band, Stephanie would record her second EP in 2006. The EP was called Red and Blue, and included the same five tracks from her first EP titled Words, and was just rebranded with a differing album cover, with the back cover including the song list, as well as her contact info, just in case it fell into the right hands. It included tracks called Something Crazy, Wish You Were Here, No Floods, Words, and Red and Blue. The songs were solid tracks in the style of glam rock and pop, and were often performed in the lower side of Manhattan, at a bar called The Lion's Den, and at the Bitter End, where they were also sold privately. As Stephanie and her band continued to perform around the city, they landed a huge break with a performance slot at the 2006 Songwriters Hall of Fame for Young Songwriters Showcase at The Cutting Room in New York City. Here she performed an original song called Beautiful Dirty Rich about her schooling years and at New York University with the girls being privileged and asking their dads for handouts all the time. She aced the gig and happened to impress a talent scout in the audience. It was here where she met a talent scout named Wendy Starland who worked for a producer named Rob Fasari. Fasari was well known and had worked with the likes of Destiny's Child which was a favourite of Stephanie's and he had also worked with Will Smith. Stalin notified Fasari, who was in the process of looking for a lead singer, to front a band, and he quickly got in contact with Stephanie, where she agreed to see where this opportunity could take her. Stephanie disbanded the Stephanie Germanata band, and travelled to New Jersey to meet up with Fasari at his recording studio, and together they recorded a demo CD of her current material, and worked on some new music, in the style of electro-pop. The demo was then cast out to various record labels, but didn't receive any bites. Originally, Stephanie wanted to perform a more rock-pop style of music, but she instead was persuaded to venture into electro-pop as they chased her a record deal. While recording the demo, Fasari likened Stephanie's vocal harmonies to that of Freddie Mercury of Queen at times, and Fasari would often come into the studio singing Radio Gaga by Queen. 
He once said to her, you're so freaking theatrical. Stephanie replied, I guess I'm just super theatrical. Fasari replied, you're so gaga. Stephanie said, Radio Gaga? To which Fasari replied, Yeah, like Freddie Mercury. Not long after this, as Stephanie was trying to think of a stage name for herself, Fasari and Stephanie were messaging each other via text message when Fasari sent a message that was autocorrected and read the name Lady Gaga. Despite not meaning to insert Gaga into the text, Stephanie loved the name and it was agreed that it would become her new stage name and artist name. Joining her burlesque or go-go dancer stage name of Lady with Gaga as a reference to Freddie Mercury of Queen, she said, that's it, don't ever call me Stephanie again. After this, she preferred to be referred to as Gaga. Her friends then started calling her Lady Gaga, and the name stuck. She would later claim that the Gaga persona, an outrageous fashion style, was a superhero vision of hers that she really wanted to be deep down. She wanted to be seen as confident when she was actually shy. Stephanie, now known as Lady Gaga, soon started dating Rob Fasari in May 2006 after the recording process, where the two started a romantic relationship. Together they decided with the help of Joe Germanata to initiate their own music distribution business or label, calling it Team Love Child, to help get her music out there. The name stemmed from Gaga's belief she was the love child of influencers David Bowie and Jerry Lee Lewis. Now with their own licensed label, Gaga released a large number of songs over the course of a few months on her MySpace and Pure Volume accounts and included tracks like Paparazzi, Disco Heaven, Retro Dance Freak and Beautiful Dirty Rich that were later released on her debut album. Many of the tracks remain unreleased and she even wrote five tracks for other artists including one called Fever for Adam Lambert. With Fasari's help, Gaga kept sending copies of her demos out to record labels before finally getting the attention of Joshua Sarubin, who was the head of artists and repertoire at Island and Def Jam Records, owned by L.A. Reid, who was well known for being the manager of Pink. Sarubin was impressed by Gaga's unusual and provocative performance style and convinced L.A. Reid to take a chance on her. With the approval of L.A. Reid, Gaga was signed to the label in September 2006 at just the age of 20. Plans were laid out for Gaga to have a debut album out within nine months, but after just three months of being signed to the label, Gaga was dropped and was sent packing right before Christmas time that year. Gaga was devastated and quickly fell into depression. The first thing she did that very same day was go to her mother's and then visited her grandmother to spend Christmas around the supportive people in her life as she cried and cried. Her grandmother gave her some great advice that she desperately needed and said, Today I will let you cry for as long as you want, but tomorrow you need to get up and kick some ass. That same day, she laid on her grandmother's couch and was watching MTV when she saw one of her favourite musicians, Beyonce, in a film clip for Destiny's Child with the track Survivor. With the chorus reading, I'm a survivor, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to stop, I'm going to work harder, I'm a survivor, I'm going to make it. I will survive. Keep on surviving. Gaga's grandmother's advice and the song Survivor were the perfect motivators that encouraged her to keep her dreams alive. As Gaga had been dropped from her label, her father was just about ready to re-enroll her in university until more opportunities presented themselves. Despite feeling motivated to keep chasing her dream, she began trying a range of recreational and hard drugs, including the likes of cocaine and marijuana, and began drinking heavily. She started to spiral out of control after being dropped and was partying all the time in New York and in the underground scene 
and at one stage was even caught by her father doing drugs in her parents' bathroom. He was shocked and upset and called her out on her actions. Gaga was really embarrassed by this, which would be the motivator to get her to quit as she hated the thought of upsetting her parents like this, despite continuing to smoke marijuana. In January 2007, Gaga's bad luck kept coming when her relationship with Asari came to an end. Soon enough, she would be in a new relationship with a drummer named Luke Carl, who also managed a bar called St. Jerome's. Carl and Gaga would date on and off over the years, but would eventually break up for the last time around 2011. In 2007, Gaga also made a return to go-go dancing, and even tried neo-burlesque type dancing to keep the cash coming in, where she went by the stage name Lady Gaga, and where she met a woman and fellow go-go dancer called Lady Starlight who would prove to be an important figure in her success. Gaga felt like she didn't want to be a musician hidden behind their piano and wanted to do something daring, revolutionary and controversial. As they often performed together, Starlight and Gaga quickly became good friends and Starlight told Gaga that she needs to perhaps incorporate burlesque or her go-go dancing experience into shows to spice things up and make it more memorable. With this idea in mind, Gaga asked if Starlight would like to form a burlesque performing musical duo, and she agreed. The two would perform as a variety act, billed as the ultimate pop burlesque rock show. They would dress in matching bikinis, throw glitter everywhere, sing versions of classic 70s rock, use synthesizers, and would intermittently and aggressively dance to heavy rock music including Iron Maiden and Metallica, all while incorporating art into the show. It was a crazy mix of entertainment, and they named their show The Lady Gaga and Starlight Review. The popularity of the unique show quickly grew as they performed in downtown Manhattan, as well as the same bars as Gaga had previously performed in as Stephanie Germanata. Soon enough, they even landed a support act slot for glam rock band The Semi-Precious Weapons. Their act became even more controversial when they began lighting hairspray on fire during their performances, with one show in particular at a bar known as Joe's Pub went a step further when they almost burnt the place to the ground. One particular gig, however, would prove to both Gaga and Starlight that their act was working when they held a performance at the Rockwood Music Hall. The hall only held around 30 people on the dance floor at one time, with a stage barely big enough for Gaga, Starlight and their equipment that consisted of cheap turntables and speakers. When Gaga started singing an original of hers, called Blueberry Kisses, Lady Starlight looked over towards the entry and noticed at least 100 people had gathered to hear them and were trying to get in. Starlight got Gaga's attention and from that moment they knew they were onto something. One person who was in the crowd was Gaga's father Joe, who was disappointed at the antics his daughter displayed on stage and felt like she was wasting her talent and potential for a career. He wouldn't speak to her for weeks after this show, and her mother wasn't impressed either. Despite breaking up with Rob Fasari and dating another man, the two still remained professional, with Fasari continuing to work on Gaga's music. She recorded some more tracks, incorporating her love of glam rock from the influences of Queen and David Bowie, and fused this with electro-pop, which seemed far more attractive to the listener. During late 2007, Fasari sent it off to a friend of his, who was a record executive, named Vincent Herbert. Vincent would then help Gaga land a deal with Interscope, Geffen, and AM Records, under a new label called Streamline Records, which was a label especially for young artists, signing the deal officially during November that year. 
Interscope then had Gaga on a plane to LA to meet with the head of the company, Jimmy Iovine. With Gaga present at the time, Jimmy listened to Gaga's songs and was impressed. Herbert then sent her to perform with Lady Starlight at the Lollapalooza Festival in August 2007, where she drew similarities with Amy Winehouse due to her style, ethnicity, voice, and her dark hair, with some even thinking it was her. In order to stop the confusion, Herbert advised her to dye her hair blonde to differentiate between the two. Gaga took Herbert's advice and started to perform wearing extensions and wigs also. As Gaga had experience in the field of writing quality songs for other artists, she then struck a deal with Sony ATV where she was hired to write songs for a range of popular artists including New Kids on the Block, Britney Spears, Fergie and the Pussycat Dolls. Gaga stated that she enjoyed writing for artists as big as Britney Spears and got joy from seeing her words be sung by them. During 2007, while Gaga was signed to Interscope, musician Akon was impressed by Gaga's vocals during a reference vocal recording session on one of his tracks. Interested in securing her for his own label Con Live, Akon approached Jimmy Iovine and persuaded him to sign a joint deal that allowed both Interscope and Con Live to be Gaga's record labels, with Akon taking the young musician under his wing. Gaga then collaborated with Moroccan and Swedish producer Red One in LA during late 2007. Gaga made the brief move to LA to be closer to the action, leaving behind her apartment in Manhattan for good this time and to begin preparation for her debut single. Gaga would often return home to her childhood room over the years and made it her mission to never forget where she came from. It was here in LA where she smashed out writing and recording for the tracks in just a week for her debut album that was to be titled The Fame, with the help of songwriter and producer Martin Kirschenbaum. Gaga sung everything in one take and spent about five hours on the harmonies and overdubs. Gaga would always work quite quickly with many of her biggest hits being written in just 10 minutes. When recording, Gaga requires everyone to be quiet and attempts to block all external and unrelated worries and thoughts out of her mind to just focus on the music. The recording studio where she produced the album was Record Plant Studios, the same one that produced the likes of Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, Eminem's Marshall Mathers LP and Guns N' Roses with Appetite for Destruction. Making things more confusing was Gaga would also sign to Kirschenbaum's label named Cherry Tree Records, which ran under Interscope Records with Akon's Con Live label, remaining in the joint deal. The same day Gaga filmed her very first music video for the track Just Dance, she broke up with Luke Carl after he doubted her potential to make it big. On the 8th of April 2008, Lady Gaga would release her debut single titled Just Dance, featuring Colby Adonis and Akon. When released, Gaga was in Canada at the time and couldn't believe it when she heard it herself for the first time on radio. The track became big on the club scene before making it onto the mainstream charts around the world. Despite taking 22 weeks to actually reach the number one spot in the US, becoming the longest to do so since the year 2000 with Creed's With Arms Wide Open taking 27 weeks, Lady Gaga burst onto the scene with this catchy dance electro pop track that peaked at number one in six countries, including the UK and Australia, and reached the top 10 in a further 16 countries, including New Zealand and across Europe and Japan. The music video especially brought about much intrigue, with the newcomer dressed quite outlandish, provocative and controversially. 
Gaga could be seen sporting a blue lightning bolt painted on her face as a reference to her idol David Bowie, and like many of her future videos, it was mainly her idea. She wanted to depict the two different classes of well-educated and downtown communities coming together for a party and to display their differing ways of expressive dance. Gaga said about the success of Just Dance that, The record saved my life. I was in such a dark space in New York. I was so depressed, always in a bar. I got on a plane to LA to do my music and was given one shot to write the song that would change my life, and it did. I never went back. I left behind my boyfriend, my apartment. I still haven't been back. My mother went in and cleared it for me. Gaga actually wrote the song after being hung over and was the first song she had written since being in LA. When speaking about what the song actually meant, Gaga said it was about feeling happy and for those going through tough times, and quote, Everyone is looking for a song that really speaks to the joy in our souls and in our hearts, and having a good time. It's just one of those records, it feels really good, and when you listen to it, it just makes you feel good inside. It's as simple as that. I don't think it's rocket science when it comes to the heart. She also said, If you've ever been so high that it's like scary, the only way you can deal with it is to not deal with it. So you just kind of dance through the intoxication. She performed the song on many TV shows such as Ellen and various late shows and began taking her music to fashion shows where it suited it perfectly. Many radio stations found her music to be too racy and underground for radio and at the time was too dance orientated despite the current trends in music on popular radio today. Gaga replied to these doubters by saying, My name is Lady Gaga. I've been on the music scene for years and I'm telling you, this is what's next. Gaga was in fact very right in saying that, with Just Dance going multi-platinum across the world, including nine-time platinum in the US, with over 7 million sales of the single in the US alone. In May 2008, Lady Gaga made her live TV debut by performing at the New Now Next Awards, run by the LGBT TV network, where she would reveal herself as a bisexual. She would attribute a lot of her early success to her gay fan base, becoming a gay icon, and she would prove to be a strong advocate for equality and LGBT rights. Around this time, Gaga initiated her own brand to represent her fashion, art, and music, with a creative team called the House of Gaga that was shaped around the idea of Andy Warhol's factory and included well-renowned fashion designers and a creative team that designed the most outrageous fashion in the style of Gaga and her artistic visions, all the way to her stage props and sound. It also includes her band, dancers, management, and even the Great Dane Dogs, known as Lava and her son Rumpus, used in many music videos in the Fame album era. Gaga explains the House of Gaga by saying, It's my creative team, and it was really organic. I was a bit frustrated at the beginning, being so new to the business, and going forward with a major label. I wanted to put my own money into the show, because when you're a new artist, you kind of have to prove yourself. I was making money as a songwriter, and I didn't want a condo or a car, because I don't drive, and I'm never fucking home. So I just wanted to pull all my money into the performance. I called all my coolest art friends and we sat in a room and I said that I wanted to make my face light up or that I wanted to make my cane light up or that I wanted to make a pair of dope sunglasses or that I wanted to make video glasses or whatever it was that I wanted to do. It's a whole amazing creative process that's completely separate from the label. 
We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. Months after Just Dance's success, on the 18th of August 2008, Lady Gaga released her highly anticipated debut album, titled The Fame. When speaking about the themes of the album, Lady Gaga said, The fame is about how anyone can feel famous. Pop culture is art. It doesn't make you cool to hate pop culture. So I embraced it, and you'll hear it all over the fame. But it's a shareable fame. I want to invite you all to the party. I want people to feel a part of this lifestyle. The album also talks about the themes of sex, drugs, money, love, and sexuality, all while exploring Gaga's love of fame. Lady Gaga co-wrote all the songs on the album, with a number of different genres being fused together on this album, including pop, rock, electro-pop, dance, and even disco. The fame received solid reviews, highlighting Gaga's songwriting potential, catchy style, and her great vocals. The album was a commercial success, also selling over 15 million copies to this day, with the help of the extended album version, titled The Fame Monster, that included eight more new tracks. The Fame became the best-selling album of 2010 and topped the charts in nine countries, including the UK and US, and made it to the top five in 14 countries, including New Zealand, Australia and France, where it went diamond. Some of the most interesting tracks that weren't released as singles on the Fame album included the track Beautiful Dirty Rich that even managed to chart in the UK and on the US dance chart. Gaga explains that it was written at a time where she was doing a lot of experimenting with drugs and finding herself as a person when living in her apartment in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Speaking with About.com, she said, 
It's also about how on the Lower East Side, there was a lot of rich kids who did drugs and said that they were poor artists, so it's also a knock on that. I used to hear my friends on the phone with their parents asking for more money before they would go buy drugs. It's about many different things, but ultimately, what I want people to take from it is, no matter who you are and where you come from, you can feel beautiful and dirty rich. The track Starstruck is a relatively underrated track on the album that did manage to receive some airplay across the world, including in Australia. On this track, Gaga collaborates here with Flowrider and Space Cowboy as the song speaks about Gaga's time in the clubs, with Gaga describing the track, saying, If Lady Gaga and Space Cowboy had a baby, this is what it would sound like. The track Boys 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 was written by Gaga and Red One as the first song they collaborated on. Gaga wanted to incorporate her rock influences into the album, and after chatting with Red One about her favourite rock influences, such as David Bowie and Led Zeppelin, they headed back to the studio and recorded the track. With Gaga describing the song by saying, I wanted to write the female version of Motley Crue's Girls, 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 but with my own twist. I wanted to write a pop song that rockers would like. One of the catchiest tracks on the album that wasn't released as a single was I Like It Rough. Originally titled Chewing on Pearls, Gaga wrote the song about being in both relationships and one night stands with people that aren't exactly good for you. The track Brown Eyes was inspired by her love for the band Queen and you can hear their influence in the guitar riff played throughout the song. She believes it's the most vulnerable track on the album and was written about a lost love and she recorded the song after many tears and red wine. She said, I wrote that song a long time ago and I had never had my heart broken like I had when I wrote that record. That was one of those 3am crying in my apartment at the piano. Gaga would incorporate many 70s style rock influences into this album with the track Again Again being inspired by John Lennon after hearing his final interview. It was a tribute song to him and the Beatles song Oh Darling. Finally, the catchy disco track, Disco Heaven, speaks about Lady Gaga's days performing alongside Lady Starlight and feeling free and loving what she was doing at the time. On the 26th of September, Lady Gaga would release a track that would change everything for the promising newcomer. The track was called Poker Face and it instantly put Lady Gaga on the map as one to watch out for. The synth dance pop song, Poker Face, went to number one across 21 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the US, UK, and across parts of Europe and South America. The track was a monster hit, and would become the best-selling single of 2009, with 9.8 million copies being sold or downloaded in just that year alone. To this day, the track has sold over 10 million copies, including streams, in the US, and also has gone diamond there. It has now sold over 14 million copies worldwide and remains one of the best-selling singles of all time. Gaga revealed to the Daily Star that it's about a lot of different things. I gamble, but I've also dated a lot of guys who are really into sex and booze and gambling, so I wanted to write a record my boyfriends would like too. The song is heavily about sex and sexuality, with the line, Are you bluffing with my muffin, referring to her vagina, and her vagina being the one pulling the poker face, as she would occasionally think about a woman when having sex with her male partners, and in particular her boyfriend. Poker Face would become one of the first songs to ever speak about bisexuality. The lyrics for Poker Face read, No, he can't read my poker face. The male backing vocal sings, She's got me like nobody. 
However, one interesting lyric during the chorus that stutters poker face actually has a hidden cryptic message related to oral sex that can be heard clearly when listening closely. For all these years, it has gone unnoticed and has been played all over radio until Kiss FM in the US decided it sounded a lot like fuck her face. Gaga would later confirm this was in fact true at one of her shows. The song links heavily to an unreleased track she wrote called Blueberry Kisses that was actually about missing her boyfriend performing oral sex on her. While the lyrics to Poker Face are extremely revealing and sexual, it also highlights Gaga's intelligent ability as a songwriter to mask the true identity of the song's meaning in a more radio-friendly way, similar to the likes of Prince with Little Red Corvette. The music video for the song is now iconic and stands at 800 million views on YouTube, and the song set the perfect platform for Lady Gaga to explode onto the scene. Following the release of the smash hit Poker Face, on the 10th of January 2009, Lady Gaga released the track Nothing Else I Can Say. The song wasn't a huge hit in comparison to Just Dance and Poker Face, but managed to reach number 2 in Sweden. The top 10 in 5 countries including New Zealand, France and Hungary and reached number 15 in Australia. The simple but catchy song is more of a mellow pop ballad and is much different compared to the rest of the album. Gaga wrote the song about her boyfriend finding out she was in a relationship with another person and not really knowing how to talk to him about it, but not wanting to hurt his feelings at the same time. The song became quite popular on Australian radio and was heavily requested around its release. On the 12th of March 2009, Gaga launched into her first world tour called The Fame Ball that would continue until September 29th 2009. After completing a run of shows as a support act for the Pussycat Dolls, she headlined 83 shows that would be held across Canada and the United States, Russia, Europe, Australia and New Zealand, the UK, Asia and even Malta. Venues ranged from bars, clubs and festivals to arenas and stadiums including Wembley, all in her debut tour. Quite a feat for a newcomer and her live performances were critically acclaimed and described as unmissable and exceptional with her strong vocals the highlight for many critics and fans. Gaga even had a lot to say when it came to costume stage design and set lists which is evidently a timely process in preparation as she is a perfectionist. Wearing bubble dresses and outrageous costumes, she was heralded as one of the best live acts that year. On the 23rd of March 2009, Lady Gaga would return to the top of her game with the release of the track Love Game. The track went to number one on the US dance chart and finished in the top five in seven countries including Australia, the US and Canada where it surprisingly did well despite its raunchy lyrics and music video that were about the singer's sexuality and love of fame. The music video was inspired by Michael Jackson's bad film clip with a Gaga sexual twist that she herself said captured both the bad downtown theme and her own image as an artist perfectly. Making its debut in the clip was the disco stick itself, created by the House of Gaga. Also evident in the clip was the many gay and bisexual imagery that Gaga wanted to include, which once again displayed her sexuality when she is seen kissing a man that continuously changes back and forth to a female. When talking about her inspiration for the song, she said, It's another of my very thoughtful metaphors for a penis. I was at a nightclub and I had quite a sexual crush on somebody and I said to them, I want to ride on your disco stick. The next day, I was in the studio and I wrote this song in about 4 minutes. Referring to the disco stick, she said, 
when I play the song live, I have an actual stick. It looks like a giant rock candy pleasuring tool that lights up. Gaga was set to perform with the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, on his This Is It tour at the London O2 Arena, but plans were obviously cancelled due to the death of the legend in late June 2009. On the 6th of July 2009, Lady Gaga released another single from the fame, titled Paparazzi. The song was written with Rob Fusari about a range of things, beginning with Gaga's quest and hunger for fame, and whether love and success can be sustainable within the music business, with the influence of the paparazzi and media driving many over the edge. She said it was all about her own struggles, and wondering if she could woo the media into loving her, and the question to herself of, do I want fame through doing anything to get there, or do I want love, and to be adored and respected, or can it be both? Where she says the song is a love song for the cameras. The song is quite unique with many quirky sounds evident throughout the dance pop song, such as walking in high heels and camera shutters. It managed to be yet another big hit for Gaga, going to number one in Germany and Scotland, two in Australia, and the top five in nine countries including the UK, New Zealand and Canada, and finished in number six in the US, where it went six times platinum, selling over 3.5 million copies. On the 23rd of September, Gaga got the opportunity to show off her outrageous fashion sense on live TV when she attended the 2009 MTV Music Video Awards as she changed her outfit multiple times from a black widow to her most controversial and memorable of all, a red demon looking attire that included a strange faceless mask that wasn't removed until she accepted the award for best new artist and resembled the white outfits that would later be seen in the Bad Romance film clip. It was during her speech where she even shocked presenter Eminem with her outrageousness and even made him hold her award. Gaga would begin an ongoing trend of shocking at the VMAs year after year and during a performance of Paparazzi that night, she performed in a lace jacketed outfit before removing some layers to perform in a white lace bikini. After jumping onto the piano briefly, she emerges with blood rushing from her torso that appears quite realistic. The crowd begin to gasp as she continues to perform with the fake blood, dripping down to her legs and onto her outfit. By the end of the performance, blood has been smeared all over her face, eyes and body as she is left dangling from the ceiling by a rope attached to her hands and looking shockingly still as camera shutters go off, running with the theme of the paparazzi chasing you until you die. While it shocked many, it was telling of what was to come and that this was no ordinary musician. She was born to be an artist that was daring and willing to try anything and that art and telling a story was very important to her. On that night, she also took home Best Art Direction and Best Special Effects for Paparazzi. Later that year, Gaga performed with a pyro bra where fireworks flew out of her breasts. On a German TV show during an interview, she wore an outfit that was made solely out of green Kermit the Frog plush toys that were seemingly dead looking, and during December 2009, she had the honour of meeting the Queen of England, who she greeted in an outrageous red latex dress and red glitter around her eyes in the style of David Bowie. Gaga continued with the House of Gaga to produce more and more outrageous props and attires, and they only got more and more strange from here. It was also around this time that Gaga entered yet another short-lived relationship with Matt Data-Williams, who was the creative director of the House of Gaga. The two, however, didn't work out and would split up in 2010, with Gaga growing frustrated at the music business getting in the way of her relationships. Matt Williams ultimately left the House of Gaga after their breakup. 
As Gaga was the hottest prospect around at the time, she decided to capitalise on her success and cash in on her sudden rise to fame with the release of a new single on the 23rd of October 2009 titled Bad Romance for the upcoming The Fame reissue album titled The Fame Monster that would include 8 new tracks and was released about a month later on the 18th of November and managed to go to number 1 in 6 countries including Australia and New Zealand as well as number 5 in the US. Through Gaga's interest in horror films, sex, and her influence of dark metal musician Marilyn Manson, she formed this reissued album that is quite different from the fame, saying they are like yin and yang. She said that the decay of the celebrity and the way that fame is a monster in society helped influence the album's theme along with, quote, I have an obsession with death and sex. Those two things are also the nexus of horror films, which I've been obsessing over lately. I've been watching horror movies and 1950s science fiction movies. My re-release is called The Fame Monster, so I've just been sort of eating and regurgitating monster movies and all things scary. I've just been noticing a resurgence of this idea of monster, of fantasy, but in a very real way. If you notice in those films, there's always a juxtaposition of sex with death. The Fame Monster album era also brought about many public appearances where Gaga appeared to be dressed in outrageous fashion as she said, I spent a lot of nights in Eastern Europe and this album is a pop experimentation with industrial goth beats, 90s dance melodies, an obsession with the lyrical genius of 80s melancholic pop and The Runway. Featured as a theme of the new tracks was each song was representing a specific fear of hers that sums up the song as a whole. Many of the music videos from this album would incorporate the death, horror and sexual themes, especially in the track Bad Romance. Bad Romance was yet another monster hit for Gaga, going to number one across 25 countries on airplay and singles charts including Europe, South America, Canada and the UK, while also charting at number two in Australia, the US and New Zealand, and managed to go 11 times platinum in the US, selling almost 6 million copies there and a total of 12 million worldwide. Funnily enough, the main lyrics for the song were written on a napkin while on Gaga's tour bus after downing a few whiskies as she travelled around Eastern Europe from Russia to Norway. She was inspired by German house techno music and 90s style melody and talks about falling in love with her best friend and thought it could be easily turned into a cheesy bad romance novel. The lines, walk, walk, fashion baby, refers to her love of fashion and the catwalk, while the line, I want your psycho, your vertigo shtick, want you in my rear window, baby you're sick, was Gaga listing Alfred Hitchcock films. She also said, what I'm really trying to say is, I want the deepest, darkest, sickest parts of you that you are afraid to share with anyone because I love you that much. Gaga describes the theme of this song as being a fear of love. The horror-themed music video for Bad Romance drew similarities to Marilyn Manson clips, with her backing dancers resembling demons, along with Gaga's enlarged pupils. The music video now stands at 1.3 billion views on YouTube, making it one of the most viewed music videos of all time, which at the time, Gaga became the first person to reach 1 billion views on the platform. Gaga would also show off her new product in the film clip with her Beats by Dr. Dre earbud earphones called Heartbeats being shown several times with the stylish design being popular amongst women with its bling and jewel design. On the 27th of November 2009, Lady Gaga would return to touring once again for the Monster Ball Tour. 
but this time she would be pushed even harder, performing a massive 203 shows across Canada, the US, the UK, Japan, Australia and New Zealand, and across many European countries, bringing in $258 million at the box office, and wrapping up the tour much later on May 6, 2011. The concerts were mainly performed at arenas and entertainment centres this time around, and were once again met with critical acclaim, with some of the most elaborate stage design and costumes ever seen. Jason Derulo, Kid Cootie, the Scissor Sisters, and even the Sammy Precious Weapons toured with Gaga, the band that she herself once supported as the Starlight and Gaga Review. During early 2010, being a massive fan of photography and old-fashioned methods of capturing art with cameras, Gaga teamed with film and camera company Polaroid, becoming their creative director as she attempted to revive the dying industry of cameras as they were being replaced by camera phones. When Gaga released her second single from the fame monster, titled Telephone, on the 26th of January 2010, she would realise a full circle dream of hers, as just around two years earlier, she was set to give up on her dream when Beyonce with Destiny's Child's music video for Survivor came on MTV right after she was dropped from her label. Now she was appearing alongside her in a music video for one of her very own songs. The dance pop hit Telephone was yet another huge hit in around 12 countries including the UK, Belgium and Denmark and finished inside the top 5 in 15 countries including Australia, New Zealand, the US, France and Canada. Telephone was originally written by Gaga for Britney Spears' album Circus, but Spears rejected the song, even though she was fond of the track. The song itself is about Gaga feeling as though she is never able to enjoy the lifestyle of a pop musician, as she is always working on the music itself. As Gaga states, it's about fear of suffocation. Something that I have, or fear, is never being able to enjoy myself. Because I love my work so much, I find it really hard to go out and have a good time. I don't go to nightclubs, you don't see pictures of me falling out of a club drunk. I don't go. And that's because I usually go, and then, you know, a whiskey and a half into it, I gotta get back to work. Gaga also states that the telephone in the song is actually a metaphor for the voice in her head, telling her she needs to work harder and harder to succeed. As Gaga sings the lines, Sorry I cannot hear you, I'm kinda busy. Stop calling, stop calling, I don't wanna think anymore. I left my head and my heart on the dance floor. The music video that now stands at 390 million views on YouTube features Gaga being sent to prison only to be bailed out with the help of Beyonce. Gaga's cellmate in the clip, if you look closely, is played by her sister. And an interesting comment was included where the guards walked by saying, I told you she didn't have a dick. This is a reference to the horrible rumours circulating around the time that Gaga was a hermaphrodite, with some trolls claiming she had male genitals. The clip shows off many of Gaga's outrageous fashion ideas, as most prisoners are wearing bikinis or studded jackets and chains, and instead of sunglasses made of razor blades, as seen in the Bad Romance clip, she sports a new fashion with burning cigarettes attached to her glasses, while also using Diet Coke cans as hair curlers. Gaga also shows off her go-go dancing style moves in this clip and is often seen wearing nothing but yellow crime scene tape and a range of unique hats including one made out of telephones. All of this showing off just how artistic Gaga can be. Just a few months earlier, the two collaborated on a Beyonce track called Video Phone that wasn't as successful. In March of 2010, 
Gaga's ex-boyfriend and producer, Rob Fasari, launched a lawsuit against Gaga as he tried to claim the rights to 20% of the company's earnings for the songs he helped create, but the case was dismissed from court. On the 20th of April 2010, Lady Gaga released her third single from the album, titled Alejandro. With many lyrics sung in Latin, Gaga and Red One wrote and recorded the track while on the road in Amsterdam, with a heavy influence of Abba's Fernando shining through, and drawing comparisons to the likes of Madonna, with the music video and style of the song being compared to Like a Prayer. Despite being Catholic herself, the video depicts Gaga in a red latex nun outfit as she begins eating a rosary. Many Catholic and religious references are noticeable throughout the clip, while Gaga also included an orgy between people of the same sex, which angered Catholic groups and brought Gaga much controversy. Even Katy Perry joined in and tweeted against the clip saying, using blasphemy as entertainment is as cheap as a comedian telling a fart joke. A bit rich coming from the pop star who brought a side kiss to girl and then claimed that she liked it. Gaga said about the meaning behind the song, I'm saying goodbye to all my past boyfriends, while also that the song represents her fear of men, hence the lyrics that read, Don't call my name, Alejandro. I'm not your babe, Fernando. Don't want to kiss, don't want to touch. Just smoke my cigarette and hush. Don't call my name, Roberto. Alejandro went to number one in around seven countries, including Romania and Bulgaria, number two in Australia, and finished in the top five in Canada, Europe and the US, seven in the UK, and 11 in New Zealand. Due to this track, Gaga began copying a lot of criticism as being a Madonna copycat, but the differences were actually quite significant. In June 2010, Lady Gaga was tested positive for lupus, as it runs in the family. She got tested, despite not displaying any of the symptoms. With this disease, the immune system is said to attack the body's own organs and tissues. However, the diagnosis said that she was borderline positive at this stage, and Gaga claimed that hopefully the lack of symptoms remains that way. What worries her, however, is that the disease took her beloved Arnie Joanne, who was her father's sister and was quite young when she passed away. Gaga never got to meet Joanne, as she died just before Gaga was born, but feels as though she is deeply connected to her and has a duty to carry on her legacy as Joanne was into poetry, art, painting and crochet. She would have it all over her house and was extremely good at it. Gaga feels as though her talent stems from Joanne and that as funny as it sounds, Gaga feels like she has two hearts and that when Joanne left the world and she entered, Joanne left her heart for her. Gaga's father became very strict after her death, according to her family, as he wasn't always like that. Before every live show, Gaga has her band and crew join her in prayer as she dedicates each show to Joanne. Gaga feels as though she has added to Joanne's legacy and just wants to make her family and Joanne proud, and without a doubt, Joanne would be happy about how far Gaga has come. Following on from Alejandro was the release of Dance in the Dark on the 26th of July, 2010. The track is rather underrated and was arguably Gaga's first unsuccessful release in regards to mainstream worldwide charts, with its highest peak position being 24 in Australia. It managed to receive airtime on radio, but surprisingly didn't make the same impact as her other releases. It was however critically acclaimed, and has a great Euro pop beat to it. For this song in particular, Gaga speaks about the fear of judgement and self, as she is quoted as saying, Dance in the Dark in particular, is about me wanting to live, but also, the song isn't called Dance in the Light. I'm not a gospel singer trying to cross people over. 
What I'm saying is, I get it. I feel you. I feel the same way. And it's okay. I hope and I pray that I can inspire some sort of change in people subliminally through the show. They're singing dance in the dark, but they're dancing and they're free. They're letting it out. But the songs are not about freedom. They're about the fact that I get it. I feel the way you feel. Gaga also says the record is about a girl who likes to have sex with the lights off because she's embarrassed about her body and that she doesn't want her man to see her naked. She will be free and she will let her inner animal out, but only when the lights are out. Other tracks from the album include Monster, which represents her fear of sex and speaks about womanizing men. The song So Happy I Could Die is the fear of loneliness and alcohol. The track Teeth represents the fear of truth. And finally, saving the best for last, the track Speechless is about the fear of death. As Gaga says, I think it's the best song I've ever written. It's about my dad. It's a really beautiful ballad. It's piano driven and there's no beat on it. It's all live instruments. My mum called me and I was very depressed. I was on tour and couldn't leave, so I went to the studio and I wrote this song, Speechless. And it's about these phone calls. My dad used to call me after he'd had a few drinks and I wouldn't know what to say. I was speechless and I just feared that I would lose him and I wouldn't be there. Gaga's concerns were quite serious at the time as her father desperately required heart surgery after 15 years with a heart condition and Gaga felt helpless as she was on tour in Australia. When speaking about the condition, she said, he has or he had a bad aortic valve and his body for a very long time was only pumping a third of the blood that you're supposed to get every time your heart beats. Gaga pleaded with her father and the song was written as a type of plea for him to have it done. She was even willing to give up her career to help care for her family if need be. Then around five months later, her father finally went and had the surgery. As she announced through Twitter, my daddy had open heart surgery today and after long hours and lots of tears, they healed his broken heart and mine. Gaga hoped that it would teach her young fans to appreciate their parents. After the release of The Fame and The Fame Monster, Gaga would become the most intriguing and controversial musician around at the time and the paparazzi and media couldn't get enough of her. In April 2010, she was named as one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world. Also in 2010, she was called one of the world's most powerful women by Forbes magazine, who claimed that she brought in around $62 million alone in that year. Gaga would make the list every year from 2010 up to 2015, and then again in 2018. She once said the goal was never to be famous, the goal was to be a star. And it seems that she got her wish, as she was often swarmed by cameras and microphones looking for every scoop they could get their hands on. At first, Gaga loved it and relished the attention, but as it started ramping up and becoming more serious, she then experienced stalking and online trolling, and it slowly would wear away at her confidence. On the 12th of September 2010, Lady Gaga attended the MTV Video Music Awards where she took home 8 awards from a huge record-breaking 13 nominations. Gaga cleaned up and took home Best Female Video, Best Pop Video, Best Dance Video, Best Choreography, Best Direction, Best Editing and the Top Prize Video of the Year, all for Bad Romance and finally Best Collaboration for Telephone with Beyonce. But in true Gaga style, she came in her most controversial attire yet. First of all, she wore a Victorian style outfit with a feathered headdress and then changed into one of the most absurd outfits ever seen. 
known as the infamous meat dress. Gaga wore a full head-to-toe outfit made of cold cuts of cheap steak, including a hat, purse, and boots. When Gaga was announced as the winner for the Video of the Year award, Gaga walked up onto stage dressed in the meat dress and kindly asked Sher to hold her meat purse before giving this emotional speech and hinting at her next album. Many watching on from home and live in the audience questioned what the dress was all about and it created quite the controversy surrounding vegans and animal welfare organisations such as PETA who were obviously offended by the outfit. It's believed that during the after party, the meat dress began to smell, so Gaga left early and proceeded to tell Ellen DeGeneres on her TV show the following day what the story behind the meat dress actually meant and that she never intended to offend anyone. She said that the dress had a deeper meaning and was quoted as saying, For me this evening, if we don't stand up for what we believe in and if we don't fight for our rights, pretty soon we're going to have as much rights as the meat on our bones. According to Gaga, the dress took her design team three days to make and was made from 50 pounds of cheap thin cuts of matumbre beef. The outfit itself has since been preserved and has been displayed in the National Museum of Women in the Arts and now at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and perhaps the most unique dress of all time. During 2009 and 2010, Gaga would be nominated hundreds of times across the world and took home awards at the MTV Europe Awards, the Latin MTV Awards, the Japanese Gold Disc Awards, she won three Brit Awards, an AMA, and she even entered the Guinness World Records four times for most cumulative weeks on the UK singles chart in one year, with Just Dance, Poker Face, Paparazzi, Bad Romance and Love Game. She also broke the record for most downloaded female act in a year in USA, most weeks on the US Hot Digital Songs chart for Poker Face, and most product placement in a video for Telephone. She was also nominated for a Grammy in 2009 for Just Dance, but in 2010, she did even better taking home two Grammys from five nominations, including Best Dance, Electronic Album, For The Fame, and Best Dance Recording. The world had now well and truly entered Gaga Mania, and this was just the beginning. Thank you for tuning in to part one of the Lady Gaga story. Don't forget to check out part two of Lady Gaga's life and career. And for more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life podcast or on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes let your friends know about what they've been missing out on and click the free subscribe button so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast further, then feel free to head to our Patreon page where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is lyrics of their life.